Hello and welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. I am Vitor Thomas, a candidate for the Blavatnik School of Government's Master in Public Policy, the co-executive producer of the podcast and your host for this episode. Our guest today is Dr. Kate Phillips. Kate is the lead of the Presidential Employment Stimulus in South Africa, or PES. The PES has taken public employment to a new scale through innovative solutions that put social work in the center of the stage. Kate additionally has years of experience with policy implementation under seriously challenging conditions. In her work, Kate has been involved in the creation of hundreds of thousands of jobs in South Africa in an attempt to reverse the dire situation of a country in which 55% of the youth has, was unemployed. For Kate, employment is about a lot more than just salary. There is an intrinsic social value to work that can be further leveraged to solve other social issues. We're incredibly excited to have Kate in our show. Now let's dive in. First, welcome to the show, Kate, and thank you so much for reaching out to us. Thanks to you. Pleasure to be here. Can you, to start off, can you talk a little bit about the context in South Africa regarding employment, uh, just so that we can set the stage and our listeners can understand where we're coming from? Yes. Um, unemployment is the single biggest cause of poverty and income inequality in South Africa. So it's a really critical issue. And for a long time, we have had a crisis of unemployment. Unemployment has been over 25% for over 25 years. And within that, youth unemployment has been particularly high. So, you know, the unemployment crisis has been with us for some time. When the COVID pandemic arrived, uh, the economic consequences of that started to even further exacerbate the crisis of unemployment so that Youth unemployment reached over 55%. Uh, overall unemployment was over 35%, with large numbers of people discouraged from the labor force and so not counted in those figures. So that was the context in which uh, 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 there was a sense of urgency um, to ramp up the policy response to the crisis of unemployment. Perfect. Uh, makes sense. And uh, when, when I was reading through the materials materials of the PES, I read that there, there is no shortage of, of work, actually, yet there, there is so much unemployment in South Africa. Can you talk a little bit about this contradiction? So that's one of our strap lines because, you know, we have many social challenges in the country. Um, we have many legacy issues from the apartheid years. We have issues of poverty, we have these very high levels of unemployment that create a whole range of social challenges in communities. And so, you know, part of our strat line is to say uh, there is no shortage of work to be done. And that's part of the policy rationale for raising uh, programs and developing programs um, that address unemployment through the social provision of employment in a context in which market-based solutions Uh, are just not uh, delivering the scale of employment that the society actually needs. Perfect. You mentioned uh, many different programs, and I understand that you're talking about the programs under the Presidential Employment Stimulus. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is the, the PES, what are the main programs under, the, uh, under it, and uh, what are the issues that they try to tackle? With pleasure. So the employment stimulus was a response to the crisis in the context of the pandemic. Uh, 
It was part of South Africa's economic uh, recovery and reconstruction program that was trying to address the economic impacts of the pandemic across a whole range of fronts. So it was announced in October 2020 as a mass employment program using public funds to create a variety of forms of employment. Uh, and that includes both what you might call traditional public employment programs, but also livelihood support programs. So it was recognized that a whole lot of vulnerable livelihoods were negatively impacted by the lockdown, by the context of the crisis, by the disruptions to supply chains and value chains. Um, so, for example, subsistence farmers were amongst the groups negatively affected. The creative sector was very negatively affected. And so a, a portfolio of programs was developed um, that tried to respond to a range of different needs. If I can highlight perhaps just some of them, the, the more interesting, there are over 15 programs. Um, our largest program placed uh, young people as school assistants in over 23,000 schools. Um, and it is currently reaching about quarter of a million young people a year. Uh, so that, in terms of scale and spatial reach, is by far the biggest program. Then we had a, a program of subsistence, uh, a program targeting subsistence farmers, which used a USSD platform to provide production input vouchers to assist subsistence farmers to get back into production, to kickstart their production again um, in the context of the disruptions. We had support to the creative sector, and we've had, uh, we established a special uh, fund called the Social Employment Fund, um, which was focused on support to non-state actors to create employment at community level. Fantastic. Uh, you said that uh, you had 23,000 schools with youth employed as social, uh, school assistants. So I wonder just how much of a, a complex implementation that was. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about the, the challenges, how you came about the, the design of the, the specific part of the program and how you got to train uh, the youth and then allocate them to the, to the schools. So the beauty of that program is actually its simplicity. Uh, it was not particularly difficult to implement. In fact, we had in the first round 300,000, over 300,000 young people in the schools just six weeks after announcing the program. And the reasons that was possible is firstly, you know, the schools provide an existing distributive network of capacity. So 23,000 schools, they all already have uh, management systems, principals, um, uh, administrative capacity. We were lucky in the sense that as part of our youth employment strategies, um, uh, a particular platform had been developed to assist youth to access opportunities called sayouth.mobi. It's a mobile platform, data free. Um, and we were able to do the recruitment over that platform. And that platform geospatially uh, references each applicant and refers them to the five nearest schools. So we were able to mobilize those, um, those capacities and, 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 and infrastructures and uh, place young people in schools. They had to be within five kilometers. They had to live within five kilometers of the school in which they, 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 they were placed. We had two categories of young people. We had young people who were unskilled, who had not completed school but had dropped out of school. 
and we had a, a, a category for those who had completed their schooling. Um, and in that category, graduates were prioritized. Um, and so there were different kinds of tasks. That a, a strength of the program is that while all of this was rolled out at national level, the actual selection of the school assistants was done at the school level. Um, so schools had control over that process. It was also at the school level that they identified the priority tasks. So, and at the school level that they also could opt in or opt out. I mean, it, it wasn't imposed on schools and they could also indicate um, how many young people they wanted to take um, up to a maximum. So, uh, in fact, that program is an example of, of utilizing existing capacities in the system to rapidly mobilize um, the capacity to absorb uh, and create employment. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, but uh, even though you say uh, the, the beauty of the program is its simplicity, mobilizing 23,000 schools still seems um, very complex. And the fact that it's voluntary, it's, uh, it's an impressive achievement. So how did you go about reaching out to the schools and explaining to them the idea of the programs? Where did you face any kind of resistance from the schools? Tell us a little bit about uh, this story, please. So an important feature of the presidential employment stimulus is that in the presidency, at the center of government, if you like, our role is a strategic uh, design input oversight function. The budgets for these programs are all channeled directly to the implementing department. So in this instance, the implementing department was the Department of Basic Education. And they, of course, uh, and they were then working through the provinces um, at the regional level. Um, and they, of course, are managing a school system on a day-to-day -day basis. They have, you know, systems of consultation, engagement. They rolled out a process in all of the provinces um, of consultation with the schools, but also with what we have in South Africa, which are called the school governing bodies. And the school governing bodies include the principals, teachers, but parents um, as well, in, and 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 key actors in the in, in in the local community. So there was an intensive process of consultation. Now this was in the context of COVID, which made some of this difficult. Um, but you know, precisely because it was a crisis context, people were able to step up and step forward and say, "Yes, you know, we need this. We need um, we need this kind of support." The schools were operating on a on a on a double shift system to 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 minimise contact at that time. Um, they needed extra support and resources, and so you know it was very much in the context of a crisis context that it was possible to do things quickly, to consult quickly, to to. Um, but as I say, a, a key design feature is that schools had to opt in, so they were briefed. There was consultation, and then schools and school governing bodies decided: Are you in? Are you out? Um, and 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 put their hands up to 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 participate. Of course, in the first phase, there were all kinds of hurdles. I mean, can you imagine? Um, you know, the the program started, and within the first month, um, you had to upload over three hundred thousand people onto payment systems at twenty three thousand different sites. You know, of, and 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 the names uh, for payment had to completely correlate with banking account details. Um, you can imagine that that in itself was a massive task. You know, even the private sector in South Africa concedes that, uh, you know, for any um, for anyone, uh, 
achieving that would have been a, a, a massive task. And certainly in the first month, there were problems with some young people not paid on time and so on. But I'm glad to say that those kinds of things were all, each phase of the program, it's now actually in its fourth phase, each phase of rollout, each phase of recruitment, each phase has um, has seen capacity improvements and improvements in the quality um, of the process from every perspective. So now you touched on a, a very interesting uh, point that uh, I am very interested in, actually, uh, that is uh, how this type of programs drag capacity to be built, right? So uh, I can imagine that uh, you have developed a lot of capacity with technology, with operationalizing uh, payments, but also the schools with contracts, with recruit recruiting. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about your perspective on, on how this Pro this whole process has taught you uh, and the government of South Africa, as well as the schools, to, to be more effective at providing public services. Yes, I mean, I, I do think, again, that it's important to recognize that schools are functioning systems. And so to, to, to take on board 10 young people per school was not something so completely out of the ordinary. Um, they have systems and contracting systems and payment systems and so on. So, so that is the advantage in a, in a context of crisis, if I may speak briefly to the kind of policy dimension. In a context of crisis, um, it does really help to look at where your capacity resides. Where, where is the institutional capacity that could absorb um, an additional challenge like this without having to build it from scratch. You know, if we had had to try and, you know, create 23,000 work sites for young people uh, without that existing um, capacity in place, well, it would have simply been impossible. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so, so that's the first issue. I think, again, partly because of the context of the crisis, the Department of Basic Education also really reached out to non-state actors and asked for their support. And in the first phase, they actually had no budget for the training of participants and all of the training that was undertaken. And 150,000 young people actually completed certificated courses in the course of, of by phase two. Um, but all of that was delivered by the education sector, the non-state education sector, which is a big sector in South Africa because we have a range of problems in education. And many different organizations have over the years come to the party and tried to develop support mechanisms and so on. So most of those were digital and they hadn't been developed before. So that was innovation in the space. Um, there was a huge push. Uh, for example, 20,000 young people were trained as what were called e-caders, which which meant they were trained on digital skills um, and they became champions of digital skills in the schools. Um, one of the nice quotes from the Department of Basic Education is that these young people are teaching the teachers um, because often the teachers, particularly in remote and rural areas, were not very on top of the, the digital requirements. And in the context of the pandemic, they had to get on top of that very quickly because so much shifted you know, into the digital space. So these young people brought their own kind of passion and and exposure to the digital space into the school environment and brought a new energy, a new capacity uh, that was hugely appreciated. That's really amazing. Uh, you mentioned uh, non, the, the relevance of non-state actors. 
I was just wondering what kind of non-state actors are you talking more about NGOs or private sector companies, a combination of both? And how did you face any kind of resistance in terms of bringing them into the design and implementation of the program? So what's important is we didn't bring them in. It was the Department of Basic Education itself who brought them in. So that was important. Um, and yes, it was across the spectrum. I mean, we have a very strong, if I can call it an edutech sector in South Africa, and that includes everything, well, the edutech component of it. I'll give an example. Um, so there's an organization that is, in fact, a company that has developed something called the Siabula Maths and Science Practice App. Um, You know, our learning outcomes are often behind international standards. We've faced a lot of challenges in our education sector. A lot of that is a, is a, is a legacy that goes back to apartheid, but we have problems that are specific to the present as well. Um, so Siavula is an example. They have created this maths and science app, and um, uh, DBE, the Department of Basic Education, had already contracted with them, and the app was being rolled out in schools, but the take-up was not great. So they then mm -hmm. used the teacher's assistance. They created a platform calling for the teacher's assistance to become Siavula champions. And the Siavula champions didn't have to be maths or science whizzers themselves. Yes, they had to be able to complete the exercises, but their function was motivation, mobilizing, creating structure, creating networks, bringing kids together to play on the app, to, to make it easy, to make it fun, um, which they were well able to do. So that's an example where we see private sector participation, we see a partnership uh, beyond the state, and we see the outcome of that actually contributing to strengthening the learning outcomes in the schools. And in policy terms at the moment, in the first phase of the program, you know, it was all about the employment. It was all about, we need youth employment, we need it now, it's a crisis, it's an emergency. But as we have moved beyond COVID, um, and as we have to motivate for the continuation of these programs, which we're doing our level best to do right now, a big part of that policy case has to be the social value added. And the social value added is, for example, can these young people uh, move the dial on learning outcomes in the schools? And so we're putting a lot of energy into that. So the one example is Siavula, which is a private partnership. We have other partnerships, for example. Right now there's ex an experiment called Izazi Izandi. And what that's doing is seeing whether we can use the teacher's assistance, appropriately supported and resourced, use mm -hmm. them to move the dial on uh, learning the alphabet. It's a simple thing, but it's one of the metrics on which we're behind. And if your kids haven't learned the alphabet when they're supposed to have done so in school, then they're going to move on to the next level. So, And it's also something we can do quickly and show impact quickly. So that's partly why we picked it, because we have short time frames in which to win this policy battle. So you know, mm -hmm. in that case, it's, a, it's an NGO that has come to the party designing the materials, uh, providing the support, and so on. Um, but, you know, a range of different organizations have stepped up and come to the party with this program. Uh, that's really fascinating. Um, uh, one thing that I wanted to understand a little bit better is, in practice, what, is, uh, what kind of work do the school assistants do? Uh, was there a job description that was standardized? But I can imagine that there is a lot of deviation. So maybe some schools have brought the, the assistants inside the classrooms, others have assigned them more administrative work. How does that work? And how much are the uh, 
those who are employed in this program, how, how much are they, they paid for the work that they do? How many hours? I'd like to understand more of the, the specific part of the program. So an important feature of this program actually is that it deviated a bit from uh, the, the practice in public employment programs, which is often to, to, to pay at a lower rate. Um, and in this program, in fact, we are paying the full-time national minimum wage and mm-hmm. the teachers, the school assistants work a full day. They work the same hours as the teachers. They work a full day and they're working full time. And in the very first phase of the program, it was, the budget was only for a few months, but we managed to win the policy case, um, to extend it. And now it's about an eight to 10 month, uh, uh placement. It varies per mm-hmm. province because some provinces have actually contributed from their own budgets to extend the duration. So it's currently a minimum of eight months, but often 10. Um, in terms of the tasks, at a national level, they, they created a standard uh, basic contract um, and they provided guidelines on the kind of work that can be done. Um, to be a teacher's assistant, which means working in the classroom with kids, you do have to have completed your schooling, um, successfully graduated mm-hmm. from high school. Um, mm-hmm. So okay. if, 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 you, if, you, if you dropped out and you don't have that level of, of, of schooling, then the kinds of tasks are things like maintenance, um, food gardens, which are a very important part. We have a very strong school nutrition program. Um, supporting the food garden, supporting maintenance, supporting um, those kinds of activities, security around the school, um, some after-school activities, sporting activities, those kinds of things. Um, Within the classroom, the the teacher's assistants are supporting teachers. Um, They're not Mm -hmm. supposed to teach themselves, um, although they can, you know, there's some teaching uh, activities and things that they're perfectly capable of assisting with. Um, So it's, it's, the strength of that is also that within the classroom, it's pretty much a one-to-one mentorship relationship for these young people, which is a strong mentorship um, relationship in any workplace. Um, mm-hmm. And there they, they, you know, one of our problems is that we have very big class sizes. And so the teacher's assistants assist the teacher in managing the classroom, but also in paying individual attention to some kids who may be dropping behind where the teacher is not able to, for example, take a kid aside and do the exercise with them slowly or again or um, help them practice reading out loud or, you know, tasks like that. And so the, the feedback that we get from teachers and from and from the, the, the school assistants is that it's in, it's in that dimension that they're making a huge difference. We actually have fantastic support um, our approval ratings from principals and teachers are very. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, and I wonder, uh, have you started to evaluate the, the results? What kinds of outcomes have you been able to to observe? Are you doing more formal evaluations of the program? How how are you dealing with the results? Not as well as we'd like to. Um, you know, in the first phase, it happened so quickly. We were given a budget for it, and we had to implement within five months um, because we had to implement before the end of the financial year. We also got no budget for monitoring and evaluation, which we feel was a was a was a grave error. We actually the only budget that the presidency itself uh, proposed for itself was for monitoring and evaluation. 
um, and that budget was not approved um, by our national treasury. So, you know, I would see that as a as a real weakness. Um, at the same time, we have been able to put in place all kinds of mechanisms. Um, so, the you know, a recently released survey of teachers and principals in the poorest schools, the program has a ninety seven percent approval rating from principals, wow. um, and not much. Yeah, incredible, and not yeah, much incredible. below that from from teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we have the feedback from participants in terms of the impact the program has had in, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, we are now running these experiments that are testing the, the impact on learning outcomes. Um, but that has taken a little bit longer to put in place and we don't have results yet. We're hoping to get results from this cycle. Um, we have a fascinating study that's about to come out that was able to look at the economic stimulus effects of this in local economies because mm-hmm. we have a big retailer uh, called ShopRite Checkers who's pretty much everywhere in the country. Um, they have a rewards program, and we were able to match the ID numbers of their rewards program to the ID numbers of the school assistants, anonymized. But what that has allowed us to show is exactly what school assistants spent their money on and how that spending trickled up into the wider economy to support economic recovery. And that's a powerful policy point to be able to make. That's very interesting. I, I can't wait to, to read this. Uh, it's a very, very detailed level of uh, impact measurement. And uh, you also have the numbers of youth employed. Uh, that, that's a very straightforward number, but that, but it's very impressive nonetheless. Um, so for policymakers in the field and in the, in the congresses around the world, in the executive, the secretaries of education, uh, that want to implement a program similar to this one, what are some of the, the best tips that you can give them? What are some of the pitfalls to, to avoid? What are uh, the main challenges that they can expect to, to face? So, I mean, in my view, if you're fa- facing a crisis, particularly of youth unemployment, this is a quick and easy way to, to really move the dial. Because... Um, one of its strengths as well is that uh, it's so easy to target spatially. Um, I mean, in our case, uh, this is a national program, and one of its absolute strengths is that it is in every single community in the country because every single community has a school. And so we're able to match the distribution of the jobs completely to the distribution of the population and reach really marginalized areas where private sector jobs are just not reaching. So, I mean, that's a real strength of the program from a policy perspective. And I think what I said earlier remains true. I mean, to me, this is just so easy to to do. <laughs> um, you know, it's a no-brainer. It's You can get to significant scale very quickly. You have a distributed network of schools. Every society does. You have a distributed network of management and administrative capacity. Um, you know, you, yes, you need to consult. Yes, you do need to put the schools themselves in the driving seat. Um, we had a prior program on a much smaller scale where 
the school assistants were appointed centrally and deployed to schools, and that caused a lot of problems. Um, you know, the, the, the fix, the, 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 the fit wasn't always right. There, you know, there, there were issues. So, so, so ensuring that, that the schools control the critical decisions. How many do they opt in? How many young people will they take? What will they do within a framework of criteria and support? I think a real strength of the program has been that the team that was set up at a national level has just churned up support resources, you know, so advice on the, you know, on every kind of dimension from standard contracts and um, task ideas and, um, and then also the training support was uh, managed largely centrally. Um, so the partnerships that were developed and so on, so that at, at the provincial and school level, they could really focus on, on just making it happen. I mean, I think those would be some of the key the key messages. Amazing. Um, and Kate, as we wrap up the episode, uh, thinking that our audience is composed most mostly of policymakers or people who want to become policymakers, uh, do you have any final messages? Yes, which is that unemployment is a problem that societies need to solve, and it can actually be solved relatively easily. You know, we take for granted, most of our societies, I would suggest, take for granted that things like education, health, public transport are sufficiently important to the social fabric that they can't be left to markets alone. And yet somehow we often treat employment as something that can be left to markets alone. And yet the social consequences of that can be devastating. Unemployment is incredibly corrosive in communities, in the lives of people affected, in their households. Some measure, some level of the social provision of employment is simple and easy for societies to implement. At the highest level, things like a jobs guarantee um, uh, are, you know, can be on the table. There's the inspiring example of the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee in India, which employs over 60 million people a year. But even if you don't go to that length, you know, the social provision of employment is something that can actually be implemented even at the level of a local government. So if as a policymaker you're facing a challenge of unemployment, do something about it. You can. That's a beautiful message. We just had uh, Kate Phillip from the Presidential Stimulus of South Africa with us today. Thank you so much, Kate, for your participation. I had a blast. I hope our listeners also have a blast. A summary of the points of this podcast will be found in the description of the episode on Spotify. And to our audience, remember to follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram as at OxfordPolicyPod underscore and on Twitter as OxfordPolicyPod. Like, share and comment. Have a good day. Thank you.